I'm Chuck Smeaton from the Royal Institution of Australia, and this is the Cosmos Briefing Podcast. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land where I speak to you from today, and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. A recent study has shown that up to 20% of flood water on the east coast of Australia can be absorbed by aquifers, eventually getting into a groundwater superhighway that stretches from Queensland to Sydney Harbour. What does this mean for the future of flooding and water security? To get some answers, Cosmos journalist Ellen Fidian talks to Dr Ben Mather, a computational geophysicist at the University of Sydney. After joining the university in 2018, Ben now works within the Earthbyte group and has strong ties to the Sydney Informatics Hub and the Underworld Research Group. So Ben, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. My first question is, what is a groundwater superhighway? So a groundwater superhighway is essentially a whole bunch of rock beneath the earth that transports uh, fluid at a very fast pace. So in the Sydney Basin, we have uh, Permian to Triassic sediments. These are, have been deposited from 250 million years ago to about 50 million years ago. And the most famous of those is the Hawkesbury sandstone. We see it everywhere. Um, most of the University of Sydney is made out of Hawkesbury sandstone. And it's a very efficient uh, aquifer. And I know it's an efficient aquifer because the building that I work in uh, has received quite a bit of flood damage during the recent floods. Oh, no. So my office is a little bit uh, of a quagmire at the moment. Um, so I, I have first-hand knowledge that the Hawkesbury sandstone is very efficient uh, at transporting fluid. But in the, ter- in, in the context of the Sydney Basin, the Hawkesbury sandstone uh, can transport fluid at about three metres per day. And that's kind of breakneck speeds for groundwater flow velocities. So what it does is we have recharge in the Blue Mountains and, and along the Great Dividing Range, and the recharge um, replenishes uh, Permian to Triassic sediments. That water gets transported through the ground and then into Sydney Harbour and off the continental shelf. So when you say transported through the ground, is it like it's leaching into the stone, basically? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so a lot of the um, the surface water uh, actually gets absorbed into the ground, and as it's absorbed, it gets um, it finds its way within these these aquifer layers, and then those aquifers are you know they they kind of they can span thousands of kilometers. Our our study was the first of its kind to resolve all of these basins across the eastern seaboard of Australia, um, and yeah, for the first time we've kind of been able to show just how interconnected all these different subsurface layers are and yeah it's incredible a, a droplet of water can take uh along the the coastal aquifers it can take about uh 300 to a thousand years to um to travel from its recharge point in the mountains to its discharge point um off the continental shelf or into sydney harbour but, but if we step towards the west of the great dividing range um, we actually see that some of the the, uh, the flow rates there are extremely slow. So the residence times of water within the aquifers on the western side of the Great Dividing Range, that, that goes up to 300,000 years. So, you know, it's pretty amazing to think that some, some water in these aquifers 
actually predates human civilization. Yeah, that's that's really extraordinary. How do you figure out that it takes 300,000 years to get from A to B? Yeah, so a lot of maths goes into this. <laughs> <laughs> and we, we, we spent a lot of um, CPU time on the supercomputers in Canberra to compute this model. Essentially, we, we built this model from a 3D uh, stratigraphic model. That's essentially, um, we know what the geological layers look like based on, you know, a, a, a raft of different evidence. Um, and so we can construct these different layers in, in the ground. And I think our model goes down to about 12 kilometers depth. So it's quite a, quite a deep model. And then we run some uh, groundwater flow simulations on that model. So we assign kind of hydraulic conductivities to each of these layers. And a hydraulic conductivity is basically just how well a particular layer can transport fluid. Um, and then we, we actually take in a whole bunch of observations. So we, we, we compared observations from uh, groundwater boreholes that have been measured uh, for decades. So it actually measures the, people have measured the, yeah, the groundwater level within a borehole and have tracked that change over time. So we, we actually ran two simulations. We ran one based on groundwater flow levels or groundwater borehole levels up until the year 2000. And then we contrasted that with groundwater levels um, from 2000 to 2020. And yeah, in doing so, we actually noticed that there's been quite a drop in the water table, particularly in the western side of the Great Dividing Ranges from the year 2000. So we actually see a 17 metre drop in the water table within uh, agricultural re regions. So, you know, water's being uh, extracted from the ground to be, to be useful for agriculture. Also mining plays an in influence too in urban use. So there's competing water demands. Um, but yeah, the 17 meter drop in the water table actually has quite significant ramifications moving forward because a lot of the, the water um, to replenish these kind of depleted aquifers has to be scavenged from nearby regions. So we actually see that water is drawn further underground to replenish inland regions, which has ongoing consequences for salinity and, um, and water security within the region. So I, I guess I'm simplifying a little bit, but I'm still trying to get my head around the speed. It's you're bas basically you're looking at the water that, that is going in and the amount that's kind of coming out and moving through all of these aquifers and that combined with a lot of very complicated maths and modeling gives you a sense of the speed. Yeah. And so we were pretty happy with this model and um, mm. <laughs> it took us quite a lot of, um, uh, of time to get published because yeah, multiple people have focused on very specific regions, mm. but not so much at the broader kind of scale. Looking at it at a large point. Yeah. 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 So now that we have this really large model, we can kind of zoom in to specific zones of interest and, yeah, maybe that can be useful for translating into policy down the track mm -hmm. or, you know, seeing, you know, uh, answering questions about water security uh, going into the future, hopefully. And you've also found that these aquifers can store a lot of flood water? Yeah, that's right. So that's not so much a, of a direct um, observation from our model, but we do right. know that groundwater aquifers can absorb up to 20% of flood water uh, during, during a rainy season. We, we, can we can confidently say that the groundwater aquifers have done their part to help uh, ease the floods in some of the flood-affected regions in uh, the eastern seaboard. So you think they've played a role in the recent flooding as well? 
Yeah, so eventually there becomes a saturation point where the ground groundwater can't absorb, I can't keep up with the amount of water that is being provided from the surface. So the precipitation kind of um, outweighs uh, how much water can be absorbed by the ground. Of and course. I think that's probably happened in, in, in recent months where we've had so much of a water deluge um, which is, you know, run off into rivers and streams and ultimately out to sea. Mm. Um, initially, the groundwater would have, uh, you know, a lot of that water would have been absorbed by the rocks and, and, and into groundwater aquifers. But, yeah, o- over the last couple of months, the capacity for the groundwater to, to, to be stored in aquifers has been diminished. Depleted. I've heard from a couple of atmospheric um, scientists that having two La Nina years in a row doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be more intense rainfall, but because there's already that saturation at ground level, it can lead to more severe flooding. Is that something that you can see from the groundwater side as well? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I, I don't actually have uh, a robust uh, quantitative answer for you. Yeah, that's uh, fair. But I, I, I can say that you know the groundwater flow scales are extremely slow. So along the eastern seaboard, for instance, it's you know 300 years for a water droplet to travel from recharge to discharge zones. Mm. Uh, you know, the, these floods have been a, a once in a was it once in a hundred year event or once in 300 year event. Incredibly but, unusual anyway. That's right. Yeah. But these one in a hundred year events just seem to be becoming more and more common, don't they? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you talked a little bit before about the 17-metre drop. Can you tell me a little bit more about what your findings mean for water security? Sure, absolutely. So the 17-metre drop has been a result of of pumping, um, mainly inland. The reason why this is uh, important is because a 17-metre drop in the water table means that some uh, regions that were once discharge zones, so where groundwater reaches the surface mm. uh, and you know might form a lake or keep a stream um, flowing during mm. dry seasons, uh, that 17-metre drop may mean that some of those streams actually dry up. Um, so it actually uh, diminishes the, the surface water capacity, so we don't have as much surface water because it's being absorbed by the ground. Mm. And also... Another consequence of having that water table drop is that you get some added salinity in downstream areas. So as the water table drops and, you know, those uh, perennial streams dry up, then it leaves salt behind it and the salt is, you know, um, not very good for agriculture. Of course. We'll see added salinity into the future if we're not careful about how much we extract from the ground. Right. So, um essentially bore water using that extensively is causing long-term effects here as well. Yeah, yeah. So we, we just have to be mindful, I think, of how we use groundwater. Groundwater right. can be absolutely uh, a great source of, uh, of water for urban use, um, agriculture, uh, mining uses as well, for, particularly for urban uses. You know, during the floods, you know, uh, there might be some contaminated water that that we can't actually access surface drinking water, whereas groundwater can actually, the, the, the kind of the, the rocks filter out a lot of the contaminants from surface water. So right. during bushfire seasons or flood seasons, any contaminants in the water um, can be filtered by um, the rock aquifers uh, to produce fresh drinking water. So, you know, groundwater is an incredibly useful resource. We just have to be more careful about 
how we go about extracting it, particularly for regions that have a very long resonance times, uh, like on the western side of the Great Dividing Range, for instance, because we're seeing residence times of uh, 300,000 years. Mm. Uh, the, the water droplets in those aquifers actually predates human civilization. So, you know, it's going to take uh, a very long time for those aquifers to be completely replenished again. Uh, so I think more work has to be done to, I guess, quantify how much water can we sustainably extract from these aquifers. Right. That that makes a lot of sense. I think those were all my questions. Is there anything else you'd like to add? I think, yeah, I think this this study has been a great pilot study for simulating groundwater flow at such a large scale. And I think, you know, this model will eventually translate into, um, you know, better models and more expansive models, more complicated models of the future that will help us determine policy and managing groundwater resources. Um, one of the largest... I think, no, it's the largest basin in the world is the Great Artesian Basin. Mm. And we'll be very excited to apply some of these tools to the Great Artesian Basin to look at residence times, water mixing, um, all those sorts of important problems. So I think groundwater is going to become more and more useful and important going forward into the future. So we just have to, I guess, do more research into it and find out how much can we sustainably extract? And what are the knock-on consequences of extracting water from one particular region? Uh, does it affect places downstream or how does that affect the water salinity? These are all questions that we're now just starting to answer at the larger scale. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Ben. And I hope your office dries out safely and quickly. <laughs> Thanks, Alan. Yeah, me too. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. Remember that you can head to cosmosmagazine.com via the link in the description for more great content. You can also subscribe to Cosmos Magazine, Australia's only science print magazine, and Cosmos Weekly with its unique approach to how science, news and the economy intersect. Podcast listeners can get both products at a special price using the coupon code you will also find in the description. Of course, you can watch and listen to all our Cosmos briefings via the link in the description too. And remember, if you support science and its communication, please support our work at the Royal Institution of Australia. I'm Chuck Smeaton, and today's interview was conducted by Ellen Fidian. Thank you. From Listener and Cosmos Magazine comes Huh? Science Explained, a new weekly podcast answering all of life's questions, big and small, in just 10 minutes. Download the Listener app now and listen for free. Listener.